0: I wanted to talk about, well, first of all, we have to grieve because Bernie's campaign is over. Yeah, we do have to grieve. Like,
1: We're sort of like midway through Shiva. It's not the beginning, but we do have to grieve.
0: People, leftists are going to reach out for each other and try to find out what other people are saying because that's the human instinct in this situation. And assuming that anybody does that by listening to this, one thing that, almost everyone that i really like to follow on twitter whether it's like gray zone people or you know any of those pro bernie people that a lot of them said things like i wish bernie would have gone harder at biden i wish he would have gone harder you know and just been more more gloves off you know instead of saying biden's my friend and biden can absolutely beat trump when i think of like what i bring to the world <laughs> in terms of political analysis it's like i might have a different view of the world or I might have like some knowledge of different parts of the world that other people don't have. But as far as like how to win a, an electoral campaign, I feel like Bernie's got a lot of knowledge on me, you know? Yeah. I mean, you started with who are we to
1: talk about any of this? And I definitely feel this having not followed really the Bernie campaign with anything but like distant desperate hope. In following it with my distant desperate hope, I I watched this like podcast or something where like it was a video podcast. I don't know how you describe it, but but run by The Economist where someone was being like, when is the Democratic Party going to step up and sort of fulfill the intermediary function that they're supposed to fulfill between the population and the state? Like this is a party that's supposed to sort of filter out this nonsense. What are they doing? And I mean, they finally rose to the occasion of fulfilling their function now that that almost didn't happen is pretty phenomenal we also i mean it's a big question that was not in any way that i saw really discussed it's not like it's so simple as the like like we can't just because this was going well assume that this is actually a democratic system where there's an election and then someone gets elected and the whole social system transforms like i if this was a demonstration it was a phenomenal demonstration and what more it would even be if you got someone into the office is an untested question but really totally not untested. clear i mean the question of what it actually might mean to do left i hesitate now to say progressive although i would have otherwise we can get to that politics in the us mm-hmm. like it's it's a bigger discussion i think this was extraordinary what happened
0: that needs to be built upon but there's certainly contradictions Crit- critiques of corbin have a little bit more validity like when when his allies were being smeared for and anti- for this anti-Semitism, what Jonathan Cook calls the confected anti-Semitism crisis in labor. He didn't really defend it, right? And so he kind of allowed that. He didn't impose any costs on anybody for cause, for calling, falsely calling labor activists anti-Semites. This is, I'm getting a lot of this from Joe Emersberger who followed this it's a much a good more place closely. to get it from. Emersberger's position is basically that, you know, there were allies close to Corbyn That were capitulating to the anti-Semitism thing. And by taking their lead on it, you know, and Ali Abunima has this line, right? They won't take yes for an answer. The pro-Israel lobby does not take yes for an answer. They won't settle. They won't settle for anything less than the total destruction of the whole project. And even now that Corbyn's out, they're still going after labor, uh, so-called anti-labor anti-Semitism. So... That, I think, is a more valid um, strategic critique potentially than like, the idea that ish, Bernie heavily
1: ish. I okay, mean, tell
0: me, tell me. I, well, tell like, me, because the assault
1: on the left and anti imperial politics as anti Semitic in the dominant politics of the North Atlantic Alliance dates to the 70s at least. Like, that's just not on corporate. It was like it, the way it had been playing out in the US for decades, in France, and then slammed into Britain is just not on Corbin is one point. Another point is that with all my love for Bernie, it's not a fair comparison to Corbin. Corbin was a much more principled left candidate. Corbin was actually an anti-imperialist. I mean, in fairness to Bernie, they weren't slamming Bernie on foreign policy in the same way because Bernie wasn't as good. <laughs> like which is not to his credit. Like that's not I mean, we can talk about the US versus the British systems, but what I'd even said in terms of them not being sort of A base of power for Bernie to look to had he won against capital and mainstream civil society isn't true in the same way of Britain, though it's true. Like you're mentioning trade union allies that he had that were part of the Labour Party constituency. When Corbyn came and like there were these Labour Party gatherings where they'd sing the red like the the red flag or the People's flag is flying here or whatever it happens to be called. I think it was very like oh we're back to those days. I mean. When were those days in the Democratic Party? I may have missed
0: them. You know, I can't offer alternative strategies.
1: No, on how to hack the Democratic Party. I mean, he's certainly done it better or like he and the team around him. I don't actually know how it works organizationally. But they did as well as anyone has done in the history of the US. What about Roosevelt? I I thought you were at least going to say Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition. But let's go to Roosevelt.
0: No, I mean, FDR. FDR... I, I was looking at those numbers before Super Tuesday because I was like, oh, you know, maybe this will be like Bernie's FDR moment. But but FDR's primary victories were just crushing. He basically won every state. And, yeah, and then my, anyway, I feel
1: like, am I missing the part where where, where FDR was a... Um, anti <laughs> but or, or like a leftist social Democrat. I, I don't know. I mean, it's his foreign yeah. policy people that I'm familiar with. They were just like, they were overt white supremacists, most of them, right? Like '30s America.
0: Yeah, yeah. But when people say that Bernie's programs would not be Bernie's domestic program would not be foreign to FDR, right? You know, we we ha- we've talked. I think it was several years ago. We had this kind of conversation where I was making fun of people like Michael Albert and Lydia Sargent for calling themselves '60s activists, and I thought, well, you you know, here we are in the 2000s and you're calling yourself 60s activist, like the 60s was 10 years. Your life has been 60 years. You know, you're not a 60s. And then I and then we were kind of talking about how we kept continuously referring to things like the anti-globalization movement or the anti-Iraq war movement in 2003. And then I, I was like, oh, my God, are we 2000 activists? Are we 2000s activists? Is that what we are? But when if if we are that, you know, to the extent that we are 2000s activists, like we didn't really think in terms of electoral, the electoral system. So we probably whole, thought in
1: terms derivative of the 60s activists, if we're honest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Don't trust anybody over 30. Right. Back in my day, we wouldn't have put all our hope in. In an, so all the hope that went into the Bernie thing was kind of foreign to me, and I thought, well, this is maybe something I need to learn from the kids, the kids today, you know. And but now I, I'm also like, maybe we need to remember that the electoral system is designed to simul, to both absorb and disper, disperse disperse um, the energy of people for for change.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we should come back to this at greater length on sort of another episode, but it's it's just major left questions. So the examples of electoral wins and catastrophic defeats from
0: Indonesia to Chile
1: are a big deal. To or, or
0: even recent, like 2015, right? Greece, like yeah. Syriza.
1: So it's a really interesting question of what it would mean to, for example, like you win the democratic primary, you try to contest the election in the States with their ridiculous state by state system and like an opaque formula for counting the vote. Okay, fine. Maybe then you get in and you've got, a without a change in the balance of social forces, I'm not at all minimizing how important the efforts of the Bernie campaign were, but It's part and parcel of a bigger discussion that still has to develop, and I think where people should be proud of what was accomplished.
0: So the big question, which we probably will return to, is what's the relationship between a movement and an electoral initiative or a party and a a politician, right? I need to, in a bracketed
1: way, first, because I'm smiling too much about it, say, it was great for Jewish community public relations. I mean, like, the Bernie-APAC interactions on the public stage were wonderful. Tell me, Biden, about Bernie the anti-Semite. Come on, pitch, give me your sentence. Like, what is it again?
0: Well, he can't quote form any kind of sentence, unfortunately, but that's that's not one that even his handlers could probably formulate. Okay, so primaries... You know, the whole idea of primaries was a progressive reform. I want to talk about this word progressive and why I can't call myself a progressive anymore, even though I was unconsciously calling myself a progressive for many, many years. Then I looked into the history of it, and I'm just going to look look at the progressive era on Wikipedia. So it's 1890s to the 1920s. And the main objectives were addressing problems called by industrialization, urbanization, immigration, and political corruption. So the political corruption side of it was, was these primaries, was actually the idea of instituting primaries to select, to select politicians instead of having it be done by the party machines. Then there's prohibition of alcohol, women's suffrage, efficiency like corporate efficiency, scientific management, the university system, the social sciences, professionalizing and making them scientific, especially history, economics, and political science. Yeah, scientific methods and schooling, even bringing them to the family, the creation of the Federal Reserve System, credit unions, and also maybe uh, imperialism and and segregation. Yeah, I'm going to interrupt the list just to say that I think, Justin,
1: you're doing a little bit of burying the lead. So... You, Justin, were like, Dan, come on a podcast. We're going to talk about progressivism and why we can't be progressives. And I'm like, I don't really know much about that. In talking about it a little, you seem to suggest to me that what I was describing as classic late 19th century British imperialism was its
0: perfect counterpart. So It is. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. So yeah, so the Progressive era happens to be this era where all this scientific stuff is happening. So that's progress, right? Like the whole idea that mm. we're we're moving history forward, We're moving the needle on history. And uh, and that's what that's what people say now. They're like, you know, we're progr- progressives. We want social progress, meaning, you know a, a more advanced society. But um, progressivism, Takes place. This progressive era is also the era of the KKK's kind of reactivation mm-hmm. with Woodrow Wilson. The invasions, all the invasions of the um, Central American countries, kind of like the recolonization of Latin America, the Philippines War, the Spanish Central War, America. So- you mean early twentieth or nineteenth? I mean, yeah, the end of the Progressive Era. So I'm talking about like the invasions of Nicaragua and the. Dominican Republic and Haiti, uh, I think it's like 1915 or something. For Haiti, but yeah, okay. And then like 20s, 30s for, okay, yeah. The
1: modern idea of sort of specialized social scientists as the people who have the right to talk about politics with their specialized expertise, and the rest of us should shut up, is really a product of this progressive era. And for me, the fact that the one place that I'd encountered it in looking at British imperial history was the description of Lord Milner as a progressive. And Lord Milner was just like the biggest racist of the late 19th and early 20th century British Empire. His line was the British race has to globally band together for sort of basically a global project of racial rule. Now, those guys in Britain were very close friends with the Roosevelts, the Cabot Lodges. I think a lot of the people who framed what you're describing as sort of the progressive era, and certainly in the case of Britain, this is acknowledged as the period that featured those sort of unprecedented imperial conquests, not only in South Africa but around the world. Now, do you have this Medley Butler quote?
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff. So his whole his whole thing is war is Iraq. He's a major general um, from the U.S. the Marine Corps. Fought in the Me- fought in the Mexican Revolution and World War One, the most decorated Marine in U.S. history at the time of his death. So, uh, participated in actions in the Philippines, China, Central America, in the Caribbean, France, and World War One. Uh, so he's got this thing: war is a racket. Um, war is just a racket. Uh, a racket's best described as something that is not what it seems to the majority of people. Only a small inside group knows what it's about. It's conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the masses. So he's got this rundown of what he did. So he said, I helped make Mexico safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1909 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. In China, I helped to see to it that standard oil went its way unmolested. So the progressivism also means the efficient uh, accumulation of uh, capital from these parts of the world that happen to be the victims of US foreign policy.
1: As you're saying this quote, you're almost rushing through it. And I think one of the reasons, because it's such a revealing quote, is that it's a very common one on the left, right? Yeah. And it's sort of very well established. But This is a point that was made for a long time by a friend of ours, Dave Noble, that there's this, one of the ideas of progress as it existed sort of through Western civilizational history was, and he traced it to, I think, Christian theology in some way I don't fully understand, but this constant movement forward where things are always getting better and building upon one another. The truth is that a lot of what was obvious decades ago has now been obscured. And I'm not at all convinced that, Quotes like the revealing Smedley Butler quote are all that well-established. So part of what I think is, is important about this is like not pretending that we need in an original way to build forward on some sort of inexorably progressing left or other tradition, but acknowledging that actually some of what we have to do is restore some old common sense that has been obscured precisely by specialists in their sort of university quest for ever-continuing originality.
0: Okay, so we can link what you just said back to the progressive era in a way, right? So they there's the construction of the social sciences, the construction of many elements of the university system uh, as it stands today. And one of these is that as an academic, your job is to continually produce original insights, um, no matter how irrelevant those insights are in a way. Because i i was I was thinking about this the other day w- with science. Like there are chemists out there that have published three hundred papers, right? And the, and they'll just it'll be like I combined this compound with that compound and got this. Then I combined compound Y with compound Z and got this. And each of these is a publication. And then you think of like someone like Albert Einstein who published, I don't know, single digits papers in his life, right? Maybe five, right? Like photoelectric effect and special and general relativity. He published a small number of papers. And then you think, okay, so say Einstein published five papers, And then the chemist who publishes 300 papers, that means this chemist is, you know, 60 times the scientist that Einstein was, right?
1: I think it's an Americanism. I sort of, the idea that progressive left movements or that progressive social movements basically refers is sort of a shorthand for the left is pretty widespread. Do you have
0: some sense of when that dates from? Well, I do. I think it's from this progressive era, so the 1890s to the 1920s. And remember too that the reason I'm I'm there are m- multiple reasons why I I disavow progressive mm-hmm. progressivism. One is the imperialism of it. Another is the racism of it, right? So the progressives at Tricky that time to were also but fair. Yeah, I'm, I mean domestic, right? Like again, I'm using kind of American in the U.S. Yeah, 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 language, totally. right? So racism in the U.S. context means racism uh, within the U.S. borders and totally. imperialism is outside. So I racism, mean, until they started
1: slaughtering Filipinos, but yeah, basically.
0: Yeah, and then like imperialism against indigenous people is mm-hmm. internal to the borders, although I suppose it's the expansion of their borders. I don't know. I mean so the progressive one of the elements of progressivism at that time was also segregation like they did not want the mixing of the races part of their science was racial science was scientific racism so disavowing progressivism you know you you could say like don't throw out what's genuinely progressive here but what what the progressives also disavowed was class struggle, right? Like this was also some, some of the times of the most, some of the most violent strikes. If you read Howard Zinn or Jeremy Brecher's um, book Strike or Howard Zinn's People's History, like there were big strikes at this time um, and some, and lots of violent strike breaking that took place at this time. Um, and the progressives uh, for the most part believed that, Class struggle is also something that should be left behind in a future of efficiency and productivity uh, that would be shared in this kind of corporatist model, where everybody gets a share in accordance to their productivity, as opposed to um, in accordance to their, uh, you know, need or or some kind of e- equality based measure. You talk about the class stuff and the race stuff
1: as being almost two separate prongs. How closely linked they were is really remarkable, like in the British context. So, for example, I I recently picked up this book with my bizarre Canadian focus on Canadian civic education. And it was sort Mm -hmm. of praising a very recent sort of political science text. And it was praising the founding political scientist in Canada, Canada's first political scientist. They describe him as uh, Jean-Georges Bourinot. Now, Borino starts his... That's the
0: Borino's rules of order. It's Is absolutely
1: Borino's rules of order. Okay. Right? So if so you've ever been starts, in a meeting... He starts this piece, this guy quotes by saying he starts this piece by setting a guy named J.R. Seeley. So okay. J.R. Seely was a Regis professor, so like a you know, government-appointed professor of some kind, of modern history at Cambridge. In 1881, he wrote one of the classic pieces on British imperial expansion, The Expansion of England, which sold like in the 1880s half a million copies and went on to be splendidly successful, right? The point is that when you look at these guys in Britain or in Canada, they're explicitly saying that the whipping up of British racialist sentiment is a means of damping down class conflict. It's a means of, in their words, guiding the national mind and right. from the states the most i would say pro- like i'd say probably the sharpest critic of racism in the u.s in the first half of the 20th century w e b du bois described it as this i hesitate if you'll let me read this justin to sort of say racial epithets on this thing but i'll, I'll just quote this if i may at length you're quoting said, w e b du bois right quoting w e b du bois So W.E.B. Du Bois is making the point that there was this period in the 19th century where the triumph of white supremacy wasn't entirely clear. In the middle of the century, the main British colony in South Africa, the British Cape Colony passed sort of a very half-assed franchise. There was the victory of the Union against the Confederacy in the U.S. Civil War. And it wasn't until the period after that, the period where Reconstruction after the civil war was vilified by a national white supremacist consensus in the U S the period when the new British imperialism swept South Africa and much of the world that it was really clear that this Anglo-Saxonist racial politics was going to really be entrenched. And he wrote, the new colonial theory transferred the reign of commercial privilege and extraordinary profit from the exploitation of the European working class, To the exploitation of backward races under the political domination of Europe. For purposes of carrying out this idea, the European and American working class was practically invited to share in this exploitation, and particularly were flattered by popular appeals to their inherent superiority to Dagos, Chinks, and Japs." And that was one of the principal anti-racist critiques at the time, but also one of the critiques of the attempt of specialized experts in the Anglo-American states to mobilize the opinion and the entire civil society of their countries behind a patriotic and both class and racially stratified vision.
0: That quote reminds me also of uh, Cecil Rhodes's quote, right? Cecil Rhodes is the, you know, the principal imperialist of the same period, this progressive era. Um, he's more done more uh, in history for the... To for the scramble for Africa, for imperialism in Africa, for the British Empire specifically, than, uh, than anyone. And he's also responsible for the Rhodes Scholarship, which Bill Clinton is famously a recipient of. And the Rhodes Scholarship was designed to bring promising white minds to Oxford to develop their connections with each other, their racial connections, all for the furtherance of the Anglo imperial rule of the globe. I noticed that Rhodes,
1: it seems, led the party he led in in Cape Colony was actually called the Progressive Party. The reason that Cecil Rhodes is sort of really stands out in some of the stuff that I've been doing is that it's really remarkable in the case of the Zionist movement how much of this idea about dealing with the European Jewish question by settling them overseas reflected established British imperial patterns. I mention this only because the east end of London in the late 19th century was iconically sort of associated in the British racial imagination with the racial other for a range of reasons, but especially because there were lots of Jews there.
0: And And the Jews are socialists and anarchists and
1: And, and like, and like Asian trash, you know what I mean? Like there's all this talk of the Asiatic sludge because in the British hierarchies of the day, you know, the whole idea is sort of like, you've got the Europeans on top, the indigenous Americans and Africans on the bottom and the Asians in the middle and Jews and Oriental people, but I'm sliding towards the Jewish question and getting away from Rhodes, who didn't really care about Jews one way or the other too. No,
0: no. But, you know, the the idea of a progressive yellow peril kind of politics is also Absolutely. coming up right right now. Like you have uh progressives, and I use that word, you know, to link them precisely to this tradition, who call themselves China hawks and you know, are emphasizing now the you know the camps uh, mm-hmm. of weaker of Muslims and the labor system in China uh, at this exact moment when Trump happens to or, you know Trump, but you know the U.S. is trying to blame um, China for the for the horrific response that the U.S. has had to coronavirus, and it's a uh, it's this I mean, perfect it's, an, it's, it's parallel,
1: right? since you drove me back to the jewish politics like it's an additional reason that the reason that that the people doing things like trashing corbin or like trashing any anti-imperialists as anti-semites can really go to hell i mean the historical line was that jews are sort of asians in our midst i mean literally that they're out of place arabs in the west and fifth columnists for islam and so we have to civilize and cleanse the west of these jews effectively like that's the line from a lot of these
0: guys right and that then Judeo- now Bolsheviks too, right? Judeo, like the idea exactly. Of so, like it's like they're an Jewish Eastern fifth
1: article. column, which initially means Islam, and then maybe the Ottomans, and then certainly post 1917 the Bolsheviks. In any event, Cecil Rhodes, in terms of this this vision, is looking at Goes poverty the east in East End London. Yeah, and he says the following. Sorry to keep reading these long paragraphs, but it's a revealing one anyway. Cecil Rhodes, 1895. I was in the east end of London yesterday and attended a meeting of the unemployed. I listened to the wild speeches, which were just a cry for bread, bread, bread. On my way home, I pondered over the scene and I became more than ever convinced of the importance of imperialism. My cherished idea is a solution for the social problem, which is what they call poverty in Britain, i.e. in order to save the 40 million inhabitants of the United Kingdom from a bloody civil war, class war, we colonial statesmen must acquire new lands to settle the surplus population to provide new markets for the goods produced by them in the factories and mines. The empire, as I've always said, is a bread and butter question. If you want to avoid civil war, you must become imperialists. And in American history, this is sort of very classically known as the Turner frontier thesis, this idea that American democracy functions precisely because its social contradictions can be exported towards westward colonization. And then once the frontier closes, pushed
0: overseas uh, and progressives are also eugenicists uh which is what you know which cecil rhodes of course was um they're into the red scare they're into the they're into the overseas conquests the philippines the the spanish you know taking cuba from the from the spanish Pro- people who call themselves progressives today they don't mean all of this they're not consciously saying I. <laughs> I believe in eugenics. I hate unions. I, um, you know, believe in an overseas empire and uh, the separation of races because we believe that there are different races. Like the, none of these things are. But I do believe that there is, even in the word as it's used, several elements that are harmful. One of them is there's an American exceptionalism. Another one is, and by American exceptionalism, I mean on the left. So the idea is that American leftism is going to be different from Marxist or yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, the totally. kind of global anti-imperialist uh, traditions that that heart, you know that look for revolution, that look for um, fundamental transformations in the in the in the government and in the state and in the society and in the global order of things. So that's one, another one, another harmful element of progressivism is this expertise issue. The idea that the enlightened an enlightened class of hyper-educated people uh, will do, you know, through, through the law, through the academy, through the liberal institutions and professions make all of the change that is needed to make society better. And I think that they, you know, if they were going to do that, um, they kind of had their chance and they, I think they were found pretty badly wanting. And I think that's a lot of what the critique of, you know, Thomas Frank's critique of the democratic party or Chomsky's critique of liberal intellectuals, or, you know, any of those, the critiques of the PMC, any of those um, critiques are in a sense, also critiques of progressivism, Um, as as it's campaigned on even today.
1: So we can talk about that. One thing that may well be true, though, is it really splits people off from other more constructive traditions. We're in this world nowadays with all this online nonsense that you can really get obscure sources of any kinds. And when you're chasing down particular terms, it really affects what comes out in your searches and in your analysis. And... Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, you've, I think, been trying to convince me over this last week that the progressive term is a bigger problem than I'd previously thought it was. But that, to me, would be the problem. The problem would be that U.S. political hegemony has become so widespread that rather than being able to think of our political currents within our own language and our own traditions, we adopt that and are then drawn into the sort of unspoken assumptions that you're referring
0: to. And we're drawing other people into them. Perfectly yeah. innocent people who might otherwise discover more worthwhile things,
1: and you can really think very similar ideas within the different traditions. I mean, I've like if you read Gramsci, if yeah. and if you read Harold Lasswell about propaganda, like Gramsci mm-hmm. on hegemony and Lasswell on propaganda, like the wording can sometimes be tweaked, and they're saying the exact same things about state power requiring the scientific organization of sort of the whole network of social associations around the requirements of power. But w- mm-hmm. where that analysis goes can can really differ, obviously.
0: So here's a really strange little example, and maybe we'll move towards wrapping this particular discussion up. But I just read Jonathan Cook's um, article. He sent it around today, I think, about Ken Loach. So Ken Loach got purged from a panel, he had to step down. He was a panel judging an anti-racism competition for some group called "Give Racism the Red Card," which is trying to eliminate racism from soccer. Did and the Corbyn leadership participate in the purge or no? I don't think so. But it was it was one of those anti-so they accused him of denying anti-Semitism because he denied there was a crisis, and so it just it just. Kept they kept going right. The goalposts kept changing. Alfie Cohn's an educator who talks about um, competition, the malign influence of competition. Um, the the problem. This lu- is the problem with gold
1: stars or whatever. Or am I missing? Yeah, it? yeah.
0: The use of the use of. He has this great book called "Punished by Rewards." I I never yeah. miss. I, I, everything that he says is incredibly insightful. He's basically arguing that. People don't learn that way, so he's trying to say, like, if you want people to learn, it has to be intrinsically motivated. But what what I what I'm getting at with the Ken Loach thing is like, so it's a soccer league, which is a competitive game, or you know, it's some kind of soccer organization, which is a competitive game, and it's a an anti racism contest, and then you, if you're the best, some kind of best anti racist. Thing that you make or do, then you can win this contest. And I just couldn't help but think, like, is there? Maybe we shouldn't be in anti-racist competition. You know, like maybe there shouldn't be a competition. Maybe we, maybe we, like, oh, the politics of awards and um, competitions. It's all kind of part of this progressive, you know, academic. These are all mechanisms, ultimately, of controlling people's thinking. There's also all kinds of methods within this progressive politics of disciplining and controlling the way people think, uh, including all of the academic trappings of... of um, Of awards and competitions and and academic prestige, and whether it's journalists, because also the progressive era is the era of muckraking, right? The era of these crusading journalists, but journalists are also controlled um, then and now by constraints like trying to be a celebrity, trying to be known, trying to reach an audience, and that also renders you vulnerable and controllable.
1: And that's a crucial point both with regard to progressivism and more generally. So the critique you're making of specialization applies certainly as much to journalists as it does to anybody else. This idea that everyone is supposed to fulfill their specialized niche within a sort of cohesive and functional system designed by these
0: by these guys, right? Yeah, now- and their individual niche, right? Like everybody's on <laughs> their own. So the whole idea of collective struggle or effort uh, is also a little bit contradictory to the individual liberal idea of like developing yourself and making your individual liberal professional contribution and getting all the credit for it.
1: What it really does mean is that the sort of apparently apolitical norms that pervade everything we do, whether it's these particular sort of like crafts or professions as they're constituted or Participation in social media or norms of organizational success, all of that is really part and parcel of philosophies of scientific social management. Now, we really do not, we literally flatly do not have an alternative sort of common wisdom for what that means for social media and the actual environment we live in. What we can assume. Is that as much as in sort of the more early industrial age there were really useful left critiques and different ways of looking at society alongside this sort of more class stratified racially stratified vision there would be now too if we had a bloody left to deal with it it's amazing how encompassing the sort of controlling social sciences that developed of the late 19th century were and the fact that they've now moved less in theoretical directions, though, that exists and more towards different means of sort of implicit social organization, I think
0: doesn't make it less but more urgent for us to think really carefully about how we reproduce them. Back in the day, if you click a link on Znet and you read the article, you know, you don't necessarily click on the author and say, oh, that person has 100,000 followers. So that's uh, that's worth following. Like you have some idea that if it's from Chomsky or Adonati Roy or something, that's someone famous, but most of the articles are by anybody and you just read them and you either get something out of them or you don't. And now everything is quantitative, metric, comparable, right? Like you can always compare totally. yourself to-
1: And ruthlessly quantitative, right? Which is really sort of adopted from from like asset management, right? I mean, it's the logic of asset management applied to everything. Everybody, even in their social relationships is being asked to reproduce a miniature version of celebrity culture with a sort of bizarre data-driven reproduction of sort of likes and different quantitative measures which have very concrete professional implications for people trying to advance themselves but also like in even really mundane and symbolic ways are just moment to moment even in people's supposedly recreational or like left political time
0: skewing the way everything's playing out we have no way to no known way right now to break out of that that's all left to be discovered and that's actually i could bring it back to bernie to wrap us up because i was thinking bernie's kind of ahead of his time right like and he didn't find a way to beat the establishment machinery and Every once in a while, there's one of those that they have their moment and they break through, right? Like that's how I always think of Chavez or Castro, some movement that cracks the code and, and is able to do a bunch of stuff because that exact moment was the right moment for the thing they were trying to do. If we can crack this social media control of our lives, we would be able to take it and run with it. But The Bernie
1: phenomenon, I think, was sort of worth a lot of people dropping whatever they were doing and participating in because it was a uniquely hopeful moment yeah the the threshold for people dropping stuff and supporting the democratic party should be pretty high so like what what was happening was something that will have to continue outside the democratic party and continuing to flesh like figuring out what it means to relate to the people who are mobilized through that in a way that doesn't just become a peripheral primary cycle piece of this machine is going to be a big question in the u.s politics